You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The year is 1960, and whether you prefer snails or oysters, this might be the movie you're looking for. The film, Spartacus. Everybody and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson and I am Paul Shear and this is the podcast where we watch the films on the AFI Top 100 list from the 2007 edition to find out if they are as good as people say. Do they hold up and how have they inspired the films of now? This week we are talking about Spartacus and uh, before we get into that. I want to go back and talk a little bit about North by Northwest, which a lot of people weighed in on. I mean, this is a film that people love, ourselves included. And uh, let's get into what people are saying. You know, the first thing that really caught my eye this week, because I thought it was so, 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 so lovely, is that Pete Crooks at Popcorn Picks wrote about going to see a special screening of North by Northwest at the Stanford Theater and that Eva Marie Saint sat one row behind him to his right, and that during the scene when she's on the train and she's flirting with Cameron, blah, 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 that he could see the light from the screen reflecting on her face as she watched herself kiss Cary Grant. Can you imagine anything more beautiful to get to witness? Oh, my gosh. It sounds amazing. I love it. And, you know, continuing our conversation about Eva Marie Saint, um, we talked about whether or not she was good in this film. You had a little bit of our stronger uh, opinion against yeah. it than I did. But um, Chris Cordray says that I think she played her cool and detached because Eve was supposed to be a spy. She was undercover, used pressure and anxiety, etc. She had a moment of panic when she realized that uh, he was in the house because she was in love with him. And I thought that was an interesting point of view as well. I know. I think that's true. But I think there's... A cool and detached that it vibrates even more. Mm. I don't know. Who, who am I to judge cool and detached? Here I am, a Labrador puppy of human beings. So. 
knows? You know, um, also we talked about that crop duster scene in North by Northwest, and we said that that was the inspiration for the helicopter scene and from Russia with Love. And uh, Steve Lehigh said it also reminded him of the scene in The X-Files Fight the Future when Mulder and Scully were being chased by a helicopter through a cornfield, which I think, you know, we're all, I think that seems like more of a deliberate tip of the hat to it than uh, from Russia with Love. You know, people did take us to task for removing this film from the list or potentially removing it from the list. And I think, um, you know, because of its its reach and its, you know, its kind of iconic nature and, you know, where James Bond goes. And uh, I, 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 you know, it's something that I, as we've gone away from it, I wrestle with myself too, you know, in the moment sometimes I like, get rid of it. Like it, I've been moving and purging and you make these split decisions this Mary Kondo touch it and how does it feel in the moment and I feel like sometimes that's what we're making these decisions it's and again being off the list doesn't mean it's not one of the best films ever made it's just sort of like if we're trying to put together a list of films that represent all that film has to offer you have to make room and this list you're going to be getting off great films you just are yeah and also to the point that without this film we'd have no James Bond what if we had a James Bond film a one hundred percent. You know, I've got to make room somehow. I'm brutal, so what are you gonna do? Um, Kill and cut, destroy <laughs> and maim. There was one other thing I wanted to point out, which is our unspooled Facebook group is just really spawning multiple uh, additions here. Um, they have an extended universe. They have the unspooled Game of Thrones Fantasy League. Then they have Unbound, which is a book club, and now Unplugged, which is a TV discussion group. Uh, unspooled uh, on Facebook is busier than we are, and we are busy. Uh, tonight, if you're listening to the show, uh, or today, it's Thursday, we're going to be doing a show at the Alamo Draft House. That's 920. Uh, downtown Los Angeles. Come check us out as we are saluting the Beatles and their effect on film. Um, we have three signature cocktails. Very exciting. But this is, you know, you got to get on it quick because uh, it may have already happened. Eight o'clock tonight at the Alamo Draft House. And if you want to follow along with us, always head on over to the amazing Pod Swag store, uh, which has our great poster that was designed by Scott Campbell, um, which is just awesome and our t-shirts are always available at tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled we got new ones up there the bde shirt is selling people love jimmy stewart with his bde energy (laughs) um but amy last week we asked uh people to tell us what they thought spartacus was about obviously it's a film that um i think people know the the title of but maybe don't know the story of so let's take a listen to what people think spartacus is about I think that the movie Spartacus is a fish-out-of-water time travel movie about an ancient Spartan named Spartacus who travels forward in time to ancient Rome, and in his attempts to go back to his home, he accidentally being, brings forward clones of himself, and so at the end of the movie, there are several uh, Spartacuses or Spartaci. pretty sure Spartacus is about snails, and clams, but mostly snails. Spartacus is a very funny movie about a jazz drummer who joins a rock and roll band in the 60s and helps them make a hit record. I think Spartacus is about how awesome chin dimples are. I mean, I want them. I'm sure that, uh, you know, most of the folks in there want them, too. Hi, I think Spartacus is about two hours too long. You know... 
I think that Spartacus being about how awesome chin dimples are is a very strong point. I mean, if there was a jazz drummer movie who joined a rock and roll band in the 60s, uh, I want to see that. I mean, I want to just make them, <laughs> I want to make that movie. There must be people who get chin dimple implants, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, because I do believe that Tony Curtis has had that much of an effect on the culture. Tony Curtis has always claimed, you know, mm-hmm. as we're getting into the world of Spartacus and we gaze upon the beauty that is Tony Curtis, who we're going to be spending a fair amount of time with. Tony Curtis has always claimed that his hair, his thick locks here, inspired Elvis to have the exact same hairdo. That he brought pompadours back, baby. Wow, I love that. Well, <laughs> let's get into what Spartacus is, which is a epic. Amy, let's unspool it. I'm trying to make it. The year is 1960. America officially enters the Vietnam War. The first televised U.S. presidential debate takes place between a sweaty Nixon and an even handsomer John F. Kennedy. Harper Lee publishes To Kill a Mockingbird. Americans are using aluminum cans for the first time, dancing the twist and falling in love with the young, powerful boxer named Cassius Clay. Audiences are watching Ben-Hur, Psycho, and today's film Spartacus. It comes in number 81 on the AFI's top 100 list in 2007, and it didn't even make the list in 1998. Look at that. Amy, Spartacus, who's in it? What's it about? Spartacus, it is the story of a slave from Thrace. Where is Thrace, you ask? Thrace is in modern-day Bulgaria. He is a slave who is taken to work in the mines in Libya. He is then moved and become a gladiator, and then as a gladiator, he breaks free and leads a slave rebellion to take down Rome. This movie is directed by a young Stanley Kubrick, still making his name for himself, and it is more famous for being a movie written by Dalton Trumbo, the first movie to have his name on the credits since he was in prison for disobeying the HUAC committee in 1947. It took him 13 years to get out. It was shepherded through production by producer and star Kirk Douglas. It also stars a man who's been coming up often in conversation. Now we see him on film, Laurence Olivier. You've got Gene Simmons as Verenia. You've got Charles Lawton as Gracchus. You've got Tony Curtis as Antoninus. And you have Peter Ustinov, who won an Oscar for his role of the slave traitor. Dun, 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 dun. And it is epic. I mean, Amy, we've talked about a lot of epics on this show, and I actually think that this film is really interesting to look at after we've seen a handful of what's before it. I mentioned earlier that it came out the same year as Ben-Hur, which is really interesting. Basically, Kirk Douglas wanted to be in Ben-Hur, and they didn't think he could handle it. So this movie is kind of like a giant F.U. to the makers of Ben-Hur. It's like, I can do a biblical epic, Watch my biblical epic. And I have to say that my first reaction, and I want to get into all the nitty gritty of it because there's so much here, is it's one of my favorite epic films. It's It has all the elements of an epic, but it's done so much better. And I think it leads from an emotional space instead of just a spectacle space. And there's spectacle. But I think the Kubrick is shining through about character and people and relationships. I... I'm all in. I'm I'm from moment one. I don't know all the details like Lawrence of Arabia, but I I feel like I understand the story better than any of the other epics that we've seen. That is fascinating because I think Spartacus, and we'll be talking about this a lot in this episode, is a really interesting example of what happens when a bunch of people, a bunch of people take very big outsized roles in making a movie, and none of them walk away from this movie feeling like I nailed it. None of them walk right. away feeling like I did it. And yet this movie does have a thrust to it. Like, this is the movie that famously, when Kubrick lists the movies he made, he doesn't even put this one on the list. But he considers Paths of Glory as part of his canon, even though that was before this film, right? 
exactly, exactly. This is a movie that everybody had their fingerprints all over. It is the opposite, I would say, of like an auteurist movie. Even though I feel like you do see the hand of Kubrick in this film, mainly just because it's like really pervy as hell, isn't it? This movie is horny. This movie <laughs> wants to get it. Uh, I mean, and so much so that you're probably watching the the newer version of this film that added in four minutes and and probably the most sexual scene of uh, the film, uh, which is with Lawrence Olivier and Tony Curtis with the do you prefer snails or oysters scene, which is just amazing. I which found- is taking place while both men are barely dressed in a pool. There's some massaging. It's amazing. And the added bonus of that scene is that it's Sir Anthony Hopkins doing the voice of Lawrence Olivier because they lost the original soundtrack of the film. And I found that out after I watched the film and I couldn't even tell the difference. No, I mean, that. I think like that snail scene, which people did not see when they went to the theater in 1960, because right. of course the production code was like, uh-uh, that's not going in here. What and it's relatively about? tame. It's really, I mean, it's suggestive, but tame. Yeah, I mean, we should play it. And as we play it, just to picture, to set the tone for mm-hmm. the perviness and majesty of Spartacus, picture this scene, Tony Curtis, very hot, massaging, getting some massage on with Lawrence, Lawrence Olivier. But when you look in the background of this palace that Lawrence Olivier, this major Roman senator named Crassus, he lives in, there's this electric blue lighting. It looks kind of like where Kubrick is going to take this sort of artificial reality of 2001 yes. by the end of this decade. Do you eat oysters? When I have the master. Do you eat snails? No, master. Do you consider the eating of oysters to be moral and the eating of snails to be immoral? No, master. Of course not. It is all a matter of taste, isn't it? Yes, master. And taste is not the same as appetite, and therefore not a question of morals, is it? Can I just say that music, those creepy, slight little tones, that occasional chime, that is not the sound that you would associate with like a sword and sandal movie, you know, the kind of epics we picture from this time. But that's what I'm talking about with this film. I mean, and you brought up that it is a little pervy, but I a think little. I, I, but I think this movie really succeeds because it takes everything and puts it on a very base emotional level, right? It's it's sex, it's love. It's the the want for freedom. Right, because Ben-Hur is more high-minded. Like, I'm here sacrificing for the state. I am a Jesus parable. Yes. And I it, am about fine literature in a way. There's a there's a, a dignity and scope to it that's much bigger than the story of a man and what he needs. Right. It doesn't feel – it feels like that's highfalutin. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, or trying to be – Trying to be more than it is. It's like, I'm a biblical epic, so I must carry myself like this. Its core is more like, yeah, I just, you know, I bought this at the Gap and I look good in it, you know, versus someone who like spent $5,000 on an outfit and you're like, oh yeah, that looks good. That does look good. You look amazing in your $5,000 outfit, but can you pull off the outfit from the Gap? Like I think Sharon Stone one time at the Academy Awards wore like an outfit from the Gap and people are like, what the fuck? But uh, yes, you were like, I think like a, a see-through t-shirt without a bra. You think this is the Sharon Stone in a see-through t-shirt without a bra of sword and sandals epics? Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I, I, I didn't ever really put that together until I just said it. But I think <laughs> I just think that there is spectacle here, but it doesn't feel like 
you are watching an epic film. Like that kind of, you know, it, it carries itself lighter. And I think it carries itself lighter than Gone with the Wind, Lawrence of Arabia, Ben-Hur. There's a joy to this movie that keeps it kind of bounding along. There's so many great performances that feel like they're letting, like, I mean, Peter Ustinov, get back. This guy is delivering <laughs> the goods. I, and I'm and I'm blaming the reason why is Kubrick because he's matching his artistry. I think Dalton Trumbo is is kind of putting these, uh, you know, kind of this great script together. And I think everything I know about Kirk Douglas is that he was a really smart uh, actor and producer and really was conscious about putting together these great pieces. And I don't know. I think you're right. I think that it's like The Wizard of Oz and all these other things. Like when you get like a bunch of really creative people together, you do get a better thing. You know, yeah, you get a although, better... Although even though in the case of this movie, I would say this is a case of a bunch of creative people getting together, hating each other. Yes. Not enjoying the process no. of making this movie. I mean, I think Peter Ustinov said making this movie was like being in quote the Balkan government in the good old days. Well, and and I, mean, I mean, everybody was fighting. He had a daughter that was born during the film and the daughter was alive long enough to say, like when they said, what does your dad do? And she, she said, he's in Spartacus. Like, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, there's a whole story that like Kubrick wanted to only do two setups a day, which if you know anything about film, it's insane. I mean, that's an insane thing, like to do two setups a day. And, um, yeah, I mean, normal is what, like eight? Yes. About eight. And, yeah. uh, and, and then, and I think the studio wanted 32 setups a day and they compromised on eight. Like that's what they, they compromised at eight. I mean, to me, this movie is, you know, I think I once denigrated casseroles on this, on this show unthinkingly. Mm -hmm. Sure. But this movie is maybe like if you had a casserole that was like tuna fish, and potato chips and peas hmm. and hot sauce okay. and bacon. So and on. you're like, all these things are kind of insane. Yeah. And yet when I put them together, I'm like this casserole. Like to me, that's what this movie is. This movie is not like I have made you this beautiful immaculate five course meal right. and everything has been executed to perfection. To me, Spartacus is like a bunch of people working at cross purposes, everybody freaking out. It could have been a disaster. And somehow I'm like, I really like the taste of this. Well, because... I think everybody kept everybody else in check, right? To a certain degree. Like if uh, Kubrick had his way, there's no I am Spartacus scene, yeah. right? Because he didn't like that scene. Like like Kirk Douglas yeah. is like, what he do you think? He didn't like the most famous scene in this movie. Exactly. Which is when Spartacus is captured by the Romans and they're like, just tell us which one of you is Spartacus and we will let the rest of you live and we won't crucify 6,000 people. And all 6,000 people are like, I'm Spartacus. And then they all get killed. And it's a, actually a beautiful scene and watching that scene again, and I've seen this movie before and, and, and watching it again, it's a great scene. It works. It's really, it's not corny. But if everybody had their way, you probably would have gotten a worse film. But everyone got like one fourth their way and you get a better film because there are such creative things at play. Like this is not... I would say, and I think when you do think about Kubrick, I wouldn't put this in like the canon because his other films are so incredibly stylized, but there are elements of what I love about Kubrick in it. It's almost like you're getting like a Kubrick sampling or something like that. It's like, I, I always find it to be, and you probably see this a lot, when a big director, and I was thinking about this on the, on the ride over, I was like, this is like Tim Burton doing Batman, right? It's like, oh, this is, an interesting mix. You're taking one person and you, their quirky style and you're putting it to a big, you know, 
summer blockbuster. You know, we, and we do this a lot. I mean, yeah. even like Taika doing Thor. And I, I, I know I go back to Marvel movies a lot, but it's I feel like this is him doing his blockbuster. Well, I think everybody, human nature, I think people are often at the best of their game when they are trying to fight and overcome and figure out what scraps they can at least get in when it matters to them. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I think Kubrick does have a tendency to get way too self-indulgent. And in this film, he wasn't allowed to. Right. You know, in this film, everything that he got to put on the screen was something he actually really had to fight for. I mean, we talked about the Iron Spartacus scene. Maybe we should just hear it really fast just to mm-hmm. set it up. Like the beautiful, beautiful climax. Picture this bunch of men in chains towards the end of the film. This is the scene that has been parodied nonstop ever since this movie came out in yeah. 1960. But the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! 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 scene is so rousing and it's interesting that the only person who doesn't say I'm Spartacus is Spartacus yeah. it's almost like that's the tell but like the one person who doesn't say I'm Spartacus uh, is Spartacus but he's the first one to get up but he's or- the first one to get up but like what I like about this film what I respect about it is because I am a horrible person who likes downbeat endings mm-hmm. and that this is a movie that is manages to have this beautiful scene of what is true human sacrifice and ability and like protecting the person who tried to free all of these slaves who really tried to aspire to something greater and yet this film ends with everybody dead, including Spartacus. It yeah. does not give you a happy ending. Well, again, it's and, – and this is kind of where it shares a similarity with Lawrence of Arabia. But the movie that I couldn't get out of my mind and, and watching this and – and I think having these conversations with you, I'm always looking at these films now and seeing where their effects are, is – well, let's see. Do you know which movie I'm thinking of that almost is a – I feel is a direct rip of this movie? Life of Brian? <laughs> I wish. No. Um, uh, Braveheart. Ah, uh, yes, yes. You know, yes, yes, I yes, feel yes. like Braveheart, it's so, like, I was like, oh, Braveheart just cribs Spartacus. I yeah. mean, it has this downbeat ending. It's, you know, it's the for freedom. It's got the love story at the center of it. And I know it's a lot. I mean, Braveheart it shares a lot so of. I'm so mad at Braveheart. I mean, I haven't watched Braveheart since I saw it and whenever I saw it. And, you know, I was like, this is the Best. Mel Gibson's so cool. My you mom's know. like a Scottish folk dancer. She has like the little dance on the on the cross swords, and she's like that movie and its inconsistencies about history. I love that your mom's into hobbits and that. Like that she knows and that, yeah. There's a through line. <laughs> they have big skirts and corsets, little uh, lace up socks. <laughs> but I mean, there was something about it that I was like, oh, and I think, but the reason why I think Braveheart connected again on this level is because of. At the heart of Braveheart, it is um, this romance. And it's a very simple story. It's like, I'm fighting for my freedom. Like, we can all relate to that. And going back to what you said about Pervy, I'll go and say, I like the love story here. And and I think, yes, it is sexual. I think it's sweet. I think, like, him just watching her in the lake, the way that they just touch hands, the way that she's basically gifted to him first, you know, for him to have sex with it. 
I don't know. Their it's a their meat cute is definitely you know a, a very unique one. Uh, you know, <laughs> meat cute. They're the meat cute um, is just like fucker. Um, can we watch? <laughs> yeah, can we watch? Um, and I think it makes the end actually even more sad. I mean, once she's brought in to be a slave for Olivier, I'm not going to use any of the names because I'm going to butcher them. And they all um, rhyme too. So it's just like, yeah. Krakus, <laughs> Krakus, 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 Glabrus. <laughs> but um, once she's brought in there, it's like, and you see her, you know, in, in the fine robes and getting her hands massaged and and that final scene of looking up and, and it's this moment. It's again, these are these two characters that were, pulled apart by the society then they rebelled against it they got to be together and then yet society came back in and pulled them apart like she can't physically can't touch them in two different i love the bookends of that i love the way it like it's just beautifully done yeah and again that was another scene like her looking up at the very end at her baby daddy hung up on the cross near death just hoping that he makes eye contact with their baby before she's dragged away and gives away that she's actually married to him because she could still be in trouble she could exactly, still be murdered right. at any second I mean the first cut of this movie didn't even have that shot of Kirk Douglas on the crucifix because they thought it would be too too graphic really and so Kirk Douglas who had spent you know a day up on that crucifix shooting the scene was so mad when he saw this first cut that he wasn't even on it that he threw a chair at Kubrick and he said god damn it Kubrick you better run but wait a second. Are you I, saying that Kubrick made the choice not to do it? Or is that yeah. Kubrick being forced by the, the studio? From everything I've heard about Kubrick making this movie, he thought this character of Spartacus, this slave who then led an army, this really noble, beautiful person, was too perfect and he kind of hated him. And in all of Kubrick's cuts of this movie, in all of his kind of versions of it, he tried to make Spartacus just seem like some random dude. Mm-hmm. And he was more interested in the Romans. And Kirk really? Douglas and Dalton Trumbo had to keep screaming, like, this movie is about Spartacus. It's called Spartacus. Yeah. And Kubrick was like, eh, he's just some guy. Well, I will say, and again, uh, I'm, you know, just bounding with love for this film. I think that that may have benefited the film in a way because the Romans are so beautifully painted and um, decadently kind of articulated. I don't know. Like, I feel like I love, again, we talked to Peter Ustinov, like, his character is so... I mean, it's a performance that's really great. And I think Laurence Olivier, great too. You get to see bad people without the mustache twirling. Like, you know, if that makes sense, like they're just victims of their wealth and their status and their class. And they're not looking inward. They're not trying to break their bubble. Like they're dealing with a problem that is here and that's the problem and that's it. Yeah, I mean, because what we have in here is like, I think a really familiar setup to anything in politics. When you get to the Roman military, what you have is you have Laurence Olivier's Crassus kind of representing this person who's like, I stand up for the ideals, like the principles of what I really believe this country is. I'm sort of a finer, highbrow right. person. I'm the intellectual. Facing off against Charles Lawton as Gracchus, who he sees as more of like the populist. I mean, he even looks like Boris Johnson. You yes, know? He's like, I know. This guy can't be trusted. Do you think they did that on this purpose? guy's fans are crazy. Yeah, I think they had a time machine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're like, this guy can't be trusted. This guy, I don't want him being what represents this country. He's not highbrow enough, him and his populist rabble friends. Right. And then you have them both with like their different minions. You know, Glabrous being the person who like travels most often with Lawrence Olivier at the beginning, being mm. the person whose like horrible wife is like really sets off yeah. this entire Spartacus revolution. And then you have these tiny glimpses of Julius Caesar, who we know is important, but doesn't seem as important in this film to the people yet. But you have no. a sense of who he'll be, played by John Gavin, who's also in Psycho. Which comes out this year as well. Exactly. But so you have this whole political backdrop. And then you have the people who are like so fun, like Peter Ustinov as the salesman 
of, mm. of the slaves, who sees these people really just in terms of money. And the way he even talks to the gladiators at his school right after he's purchased Spartacus, checked his teeth, made sure he's healthy, made love sure it, he's limble. It. I mean, he's almost acting like he's doing them a favor. By the way, that opening sequence uh, at the salt mines, that was shot by the original director, Anthony Mann, who was fired uh, you know, after he had a falling out with Kirk Douglas. So Kirk Douglas seems to be a little volatile. Um, yeah, Kirk Douglas wrote a whole book on this called, like, I Am Spartacus, which I think is a little bit self-flattering, but he is uh, also 102. Yeah, sure. So he can kind of do it. It's, like, a fairly recent book, but it is his whole talk about, like, making this movie and how later in life he realizes he was kind of a jerk. I mean, I think, you know, like, all... We talk about this. All these creators, these people who are really passionate about what they're doing are kind of a-holes, right? I mean, they are, they are, we've just, we've now like have a line of people who are just grade A a-holes. Um, but I will say, uh, I had a run in with Kirk Douglas when I was doing Conan O'Brien show back in the day when it was on at 1230. When he was only 90? Yeah, it was, it was post-stroke and we would do this stuff at Conan where we would do like, you know, staring contests and all these kind of fun bits. And I remember it so clearly because he's Kirk Douglas and there's an there's an energy to someone that is old Hollywood, but he didn't want to be in his dressing room. And I'd done Conan millions of times and he wanted to be out among all the actors in the hallway. And he came out and he started talking to all of us and just being like, oh, I love this. I love how this is like Hollywood. This is like the old, you know, vaudeville shows. I like just looking at our costumes and just engaged. And I just love that a, a guy who, and this is, you know, probably, uh, gosh, I mean, early 2000s, you know, just wanted to be in the mix like that. Uh, and again, I did Conan a bunch of times. And just to see him out there, like, touching my, like, shark costume. Like, what is this? Shark, I love this. This is hilarious. Like, I mean, that's not his voice at all. But, uh... <laughs> well, let's play Peter Ustinov welcoming Spartacus to his gladiatorial school. Mm. Because just, like, the way he phrases his speech, the way it sounds, kind of like you'd be welcoming a bunch of telemarketers to your office. <laughs> and, like, you can kind of see through... It's almost sorry to bother you-esque in terms of, I think, the subliminal, like, oh, God. Slaves! You have arrived at the gladiatorial school of Lentulus Batiatus. Here you will be trained by experts to fight in pairs to the death. Obviously, you won't be required to fight to the death here. That'll only be after you've been sold. And then for ladies and gentlemen of quality, those who appreciate a fine kill. The gladiators, like a stallion, must be pampered. You'll be oiled, bathed, shaved, massaged, taught to use your heads. A good body with a dull brain is as cheap as life itself. You'll be given your ceremonial cow does. Marcellus, please. There. Be proud of them. On certain special occasions, those of you who please me will even be given the companionship of a young lady. Approximately half our graduates live for five, ten, ten years. Some of them even attain freedom and become trainers themselves, Marcellus. <laughs> I congratulate you, and may fortune smile on most of you. <laughs> that most of you. It, is, it does feel like he's giving that speech today. It doesn't yes. feel so much like the grandiloquent speechifying of right. these type of performances. And that's, again, what makes this film so fun to watch. I, I had fun watching it because the characters are these 
really great performances. They're not just very stoic. And I, I hear what you're saying about Kubrick, you know, not wanting to have Spartacus be too uh, clean or bright and shiny. And I think, you know, at Which the end usually of the- would be my problem, to be honest. Exactly. Yeah. And I think they walk, uh, They yes, he is. But there are elements to him. You see a little side of him that I feel like dings him a little bit. Not dings him like that he's a bad character or a conflicted character, but he doesn't seem like the way we saw Lawrence of Arabia where he looks like a god in this desert. Like he looks a part of the the world. Yeah, or even, you know, to put like another parallel on it, Gladiator. You know, the Russell Crowe character in Gladiator is is very perfect. He's mm-hmm. the greatest fighter. He has this wife he's always dreaming of. I hate the flashbacks in Gladiator. They just, they really irritate me. Here, Kirk Douglas is more openly unusual about his life. When he first meets Gene Simmons, he says he's a virgin. Right. You know, and Kirk Douglas is kind of old. You know, he's like in his 40s. And this is a movie where a 40-year-old is like, I am a virgin. And I think just by that, you really get the uniqueness of his character in a way that lets him be I think superhuman. Right. Well, he because he's not superhuman, he is a victim of circumstance. He just makes a decision. And his decision is based, again, purely in an emotional way. When the, and I want to call him the principal of the school, but no, the, the trainer of the gladiator school, you know, basically pushes him too far and, you know, and teases him that, you know, I we sent off your girlfriend. So get ready. You're right, and, and he doesn't kill him in like a glorious, bloodthirsty way, he drowns him in a pot of beans? Yes. In that scene, it's like, wow, he's just drowning this man. And it's not because of the fact that he was uh, chosen to fight when he was told he wasn't going to fight. There's no Han Solo shit around him. No. Or like, I anoint you Ray or whatever. I I agree. I just feel like that's what I like about him. It's a little bit more selfish. His, His motivations are selfish and then they become bigger because, yes, like he, you know, starts a revolution. I would say that he doesn't even know he's starting a revolution, but the power behind him doing that act uh, is is giant. I mean, yeah, I mean, and taking down Rome isn't even his goal. He wants to leave. Yeah, it's Rome who doesn't let them leave. Right. And then when he he has no choice at that point, it's like get killed or kill people while dying. Right. And he seemingly knows it. And I think those are the subtle distinctions. And if that's what Kubrick is bringing to this film, just kind of a a more realistic or humanized view of this character, I think it works. I think maybe that's a a takeaway. And that's what I love about Lawrence of Arabia. Like you see this destruction of this this character, this idealistic person who wants adventure, and then he kind of crumbles. And we've seen- This heroic archetype, which is what's like even in Ad Astra. You know, I like these movies about- what personality type, type does it take to be this singular person? Mm. And it's not flattering. You know, right. it really isn't flattering. And I like it when we go there. Well, I think Schindler's does a great job of that as well. Like, you know, you you at the end, like you see, you know, these characters, they are they have warts and all. Or so, Scarlett O'Hara even. I mean, yeah. Scarlett O'Hara is as flawed, if not more, as Lawrence of Olivia. I totally agree. Lawrence of Olivia. I just said Lawrence uh, of Olivia. Okay, yeah. ah, Lawrence of Arabia. But you know what I mean. They're all, yeah, they're all, they're the, all same the same Lawrence. Hey, Larry over here, Larry over there. It's so much harder to see a perfect person being perfect because I can never be that. Yeah. But if, you know, but if you see somebody who's made some mistakes, it's, it is uh, more engaging. Well, and to tie those things together, when Kirk Douglas went to Lawrence of Olivier, Lawrence of Olivier, and I'm just going to call him I Lawrence know. of Olivier yeah. forever. When Kirk Douglas I'm went to Lawrence of Olay, Lawrence of Olay, <laughs> to his house to be like, do this movie. We would love to have you do this movie. Because at the time, there was another competing Spartacus epic being made. It was called The Gladiators, and it was okay. going to star Yul Brenner. 
And they were both fighting to get Laurence Olivier in the movie. Oh, wow. So Kirk Douglas goes over to his house and he's like, be in my movie, be in my movie. And they're having lunch and Vivian Leigh is there because they're still together, but they're about to break up at this point. In the middle of this lunch, Vivian Leigh says to Laurence, she says, why won't you fuck me anymore, Larry? And everybody gets really awkward at the table, obviously. And then she turns to Kirk and she says, why don't you fuck me? Whoa. And that was when it became really clear to everybody that she really was having a mental breakdown. And then they get divorced right after that. Wow. But now, when they were trying to woo Lawrence of Olivier and not to- <laughs> You just did it too. Oh, shit. Fuck. <laughs> uh... <laughs> That's his name now. Yeah. Lawrence O. Olivier. Uh, go, uh, There's just like an apostrophe. Not to skirt right by that, because we know we talked about her a little bit uh, before, but- when they were trying to get uh, Lawrence Olivier in the film, I know that he was also mentioned as a potential director at a certain point. Was that part of the the, the deal they were trying to make? Yeah. I mean, Kubrick was not the first choice at all to make this movie. They were mm. like, if you will direct it, please direct it. Like, please, whatever you want, whatever it will take to get you signed on to this movie. I mean, Kirk, like in his book I think about this is really interesting because you sense – it seems like a man almost dog paddling to try to keep this movie alive. Mm-hmm. And like, okay, he dropped out. All right, you're in. Okay, man's not working out. Okay, Kubrick, I don't know. Will you do it? You're in. And just doing everything he can. He had so much riding on this. I mean, for the stakes of Spartacus, this movie was supposed to be made for maybe $4 million. It comes in at $12 million. It They spend years making it. I mean, wow. this movie was brutal. I'm surprised over that people just didn't, like, give up, honestly. Well, it's interesting, though, because for him to be rejected from Ben-Hur, then to get this movie going, and for them both to come out the same year, it seems like Ben-Hur was also on the same production track. I mean, you yeah. can't have a movie that, you know, like, just to give you a little snapshot, you know, where you have a gladiator camp that was 10 acres, uh, you know, big, uh, cost $40,000 to erect. And, you know, on one side of the set, there's like a 125-foot asbestos curtain hung, you know, so you could show a burning camp. You know, it's like production, you know, borrows 5,000 uniforms and seven tons of armor from Italian museums. You know, 187 stuntmen are employed, as well as 10,500 other people. I mean, this is a giant movie, but I feel like if both of these movies are going on at the same time, like... Who else is working in Hollywood? Because it feels like everything must have been diverted to these two projects. Yeah, and also the first person they asked to direct Spartacus was David Lean. And David Lean was like, I don't know if I'm up for it. And he's then goes and makes Lords of Arabia. By the way, I want to make a movie. That should be a movie, Amy, that we should make. The competing uh, Ben-Hur and Spartacus. Like these people behind these epics in Hollywood. It would be a very interesting thing because it's sort of like, is this your meal ticket back then if you make – an epic, because as these epics are going on, now we look at it knowing like, oh, well, here's uh, Hitchcock, who's making the most pared down movie that he's ever made, which is a very like, I don't know, there's a lot going on in Hollywood at this point. Yeah, I mean, it makes you wonder how many pairs of sandals were made in this year and then what happened to all of them, right? <laughs> like, right. weren't there just like 50,000 pairs of sandals made for extras? I mean, I don't think they would move the sandals from one set to another set. But I don't isn't, think they timed it properly. But Isn't the the joke, though, that, like, if you look in the background, you'll see people in sneakers and Spartacus? Is that like, <laughs> isn't that like the whole, like, hey, there's a movie gaffe in this one. Uh, most people are wearing white sneakers, you know. Uh, of course they are. Because... Like Seinfeld's running around in the background. <laughs> like, what's the deal with my toga? <laughs> what's the deal with these Romans? Why do they want to kill us? <laughs> You like to watch new stuff, right? 
Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. <laughs> Why is this movie like considered Marxist propaganda? Whoa, that's a segue. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, because I, I did a little bit of research, and they were saying, like, you know, Hedda Hopper, who we've talked about yeah. in the past, and John Wayne were very vocal. John Wayne, again, coming out on the, the wrong side of history. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were very vocal about their opinions that this film was a Marxist propaganda. And I don't, I don't know what that is. I could see, again, like, all right, well— Dalton Trumbo is writing this, um, this, so I could see maybe there's a little hesitation with yeah. that. But Marxist propaganda feels like, huh. You know, later on in this episode, we're going to talk to a blacklist expert, a man named Thomas Doherty. He wrote a book called Show Trial that came out last year about like this build up to the 1947 HUAC investigation in which Dalton Trumbo, the writer of this movie, was sentenced to prison and was not allowed to put his name on a movie for 13 years. And this being the first one that he was able to just say was a Dalton Trumbo picture. And even that wasn't until like the very last moment. He wrote most of this under the pseudonym Sam Jackson. And uh, didn't Kubrick say like, oh, well, if he can't get credit, I'll, I'll take it. Uh, yeah. 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 And, then and they were like, like, no, no, <laughs> no Kubrick. No, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, Kubrick, I'll take this one for the team. And I think I think honestly that's part of why his Kubrick's ego was so wounded on this one. And he was like, fine, I didn't even make this movie. But but yeah, like I think by this point, Hedda Hopper had 13 years invested in destroying Dalton Trumbo's life, to be uh, honest. Okay. You know, she was one of the really loud people demonizing him as a communist in 1947. You know, in 1947, you know, the Hollywood reporter publishes all of these people people's pictures with their communist card, people whose communist cards had been leaked to them. Mm -hmm. And Dalton Trumbo was one of them. They're saying like, these people are communists in Hollywood. And Hedda Hopper was very loud about it. She was Mm -hmm. like, these people need to never work again. These people need to be destroyed. I mean, we have this interesting art going on in the last couple episodes. You know, we had Elia Kazan a few weeks ago with On the Waterfront. Now we've got Dalton Trumbo. These are two men who were very different in the way they reacted when they were called up onto the stand. You know, Dalton Trumbo is called up first. He thinks he's going to get off, and that's one of the things we'll be talking about with Thomas. Like right. He thinks he's going to be fine. He thinks he can get called up on stand, make a big speech, because he was a great writer about how this is a completely un-American thing to be doing, calling him up on stand to testify yeah. like this, how the First Amendment should protect him. It doesn't, and he gets sentenced to a year in prison, and he does, I think, around 10 months. And then years later, Kazan is like summoned up also on screen as to name names, and he does. And because he has seen people like Dalton Trumbull be arrested, he has seen people's Careers get ruined, which Dalton Trumbull didn't know even at the time was going to happen to him. Well, then here's where I think I'm a little bit confused. We've talked a lot about this, you know, this HUAC, you know, board and and naming names. And it's really come up a lot. And in a weird way, 
this list is kind of defined by that pivotal moment in Hollywood. I mean, these movies are on this list as people standing up against a system yeah. that was affecting them. Including High Noon. I mean, honestly, to be honest, I think the main reason Spartacus is on this list mm-hmm. Because it's a fun movie, but I think right. the main reason it's here is because Dalton Trumbull's name is in the credits. I guess where I'm confused is I've always felt that, you know, it was about communism coming in to the United States. And are you a communist? But then when I hear John Wayne and Hedda Hopper saying it's Marxist propaganda, am, am I supposed to say is Marxism and communism the same at this point? I mean, is that what we're afraid of? Or are we just, because I, I guess I always viewed it as like, we're afraid of the Russians and we don't want to be communists and communists are here and they're going to, you know, flip our system like sleeper cells or something like that. Yeah. I mean, is it a lot like today where we're just like Russian communist socialism, where we just use these words to say like anything that freaks us out about yeah. like the people who are on top, not always being the people on top. Like, is it sloppy language? Yeah. Which I, I, I do feel like there's a bit of sloppy language. It's weird how similar the language if, of the forties is to today. You know, there were a group of people in Hollywood calling themselves anti-fascists, you know, and there are people like Humphrey Bogart, you know, being like, I'm an anti-fascist and why is that a bad thing? And it's fascinating to see that get turned around again as a pejorative. I looked up the definition of Marxism and it says it's a method of socioeconomic analysis that views class relations and social conflict using a materialistic interpretation of historical development and takes a dialectic view of social transformation. That's a very... Simple to understand, easy way to get that in your head. You know, just say it like 10 times straight and you get it. <laughs> I mean, it is all here. I mean, if that's if that definition is saying societies where people are bought and sold as commodities and not treated as equals is an yeah. issue, which it is. Yeah. I mean, that is what this movie is saying it, on a yeah. core level. It's like if you're saying like Marxism is like, well, we should have no classes. I mean, why would John Wayne want there to be classes? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, we shouldn't be like, no, 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 we need to keep the slaves down. I mean, that's essentially, if you're saying this movie is Marxist propaganda, then you're saying like, well, but there's a reason why certain people are lower than other people. Yeah, or why is anti-anti-fascism a good thing? Shouldn't, doesn't that mean you're pro-fascism? Like, what's happening in here? Yeah, all right. So maybe it is, you're right, this kind of taking a term and uh, and a point of view that is not necessarily incredibly thought out. Yeah, but what I do want to say, like, what I find is really striking is we glanced on the Kazan outcry and how controversial his name was in On the Waterfront, how when he wins an honorary Oscar, half the people won't stand up. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I think it's interesting that we've kind of reduced the story of the blacklist, I think, as a culture, pretty simply into there was a blacklist, Kazan did the wrong thing. And that's like the kind of number one fact. You're like, there was a blacklist, Kazan didn't stand up against it. And Kazan, this figure who was subpoenaed, I think it's a lot of the vitriol for the blacklist, almost like he was responsible directly for it. Mm. You know, almost like he made it happen and he was the person who deliberately ruined a lot of people's lives. And I've been thinking about how I think it just feels like our, in a way, the people who instituted the blacklist win when we blame Kazan for it or when he becomes the singular figure that seems to represent it. Because... The blacklist is the studio bosses. It's Louis B. Mayer. It's Harry Cohen. It's Jack Warner saying like, yes, we will do the blacklisting. And then it's people like Kazan getting subpoenaed and being weak. And it feels like our blame is kind of misdirected when we put it on Kazan. I mean, it it should be on McCarthy and it should be on the studios. Right. And I mean, Kazan is not a person who volunteered. He's a person who was called up and he was put in an impossible position. And I think we all kind of would wish he would have done something else. But people, I will say this, just to kind of just button what you're saying a little bit too. I think this is something that is indicative in our society, American culture, which is the famous person 
is going to be the person for better or for worse. Like the figurehead that's famous is the one that we give attention to. It's so yes, at that point, like no one cares who Jack Warner is ultimately, but you put a face that you recognize or is that has some sort of notoriety. And then it's like, that's the person we just gravitate towards the fame. Yeah. But it is interesting that like when, you know, the blacklist was awful. And it is strange to me that we're more mad at Kazan than we are for John Wayne, who loved it, Hedda Hopper, who was like, put mm-hmm. people on the blacklist, Ronald Reagan, who was like testifying there day one, saying like, I support demonizing communists, people in Hollywood. I mean, to me, like the way that I, the way I, the way that I see it, honestly, is like, there were heroes, people like Dalton Trumbo, mm-hmm. who did the right thing and took the hit. And then there were weak people who I feel more neutral about, and that's somebody like Kazan, who I don't feel like I'm in a position to judge because- it's, I think it's easy for us in, like, 2019, you know, to look back and say, yeah. like, it was going to end soon. Somebody just had to say, have you no decency and it would be over. You don't know that when you're Kazan. But also, let me just kind of get on the anti-Kazan bandwagon. In every subsequent interview, he's like, I would do it again. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like I was pressured and I and I felt like the system, you know, he's taken a point of view of – not only did I do it, I was right to do it. I didn't understand the effects it would have. But you know what? My gut says even if I did, I would have still did it. Yeah, he and did it, double down in a way that I think didn't yeah. help. I mean, maybe it's actually a good segue into your interview with our expert kind of here on this whole situation. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk to Thomas Doherty, the author of Show Trial, a book about the buildup to The Blacklist. You really center a lot of your book on this big HUAC trial in 1947 and on really like this testimony of the Hollywood 10. And most of those Mm -hmm. men were writers. And you really do, I think, a great job in this book of tracing back why they were writers and that there was this grudge that had been going on in Hollywood for over a decade over unionizing. I mean, what was happening? What was this history that was that was taking place in 1947 that like led up to this moment? Well, there were really two backstories, and in writing the book about this moment in 1947, when the House on American Activities Committee, you know, calls Hollywood to account for alleged Hollywood subversion, and has these, you know, this hullabaloo of a hearing in late October 1947, and one is the squabbles in the 1930s over unionization in Hollywood, over larger issues of what was called the Popular Front, which was this broad coalition of, you know, anywhere from, you know, hardcore communists on the far left to your basic New Deal Democrat at the middle of the road. And this popular front galvanized around issues of uh, anti-fascism overseas and equal rights and labor rights at home. That sounds pretty familiar. Yeah. And whatever disagreements you might have had within that rubric, the big umbrella of the Hollywood front, you sort of put on hold in the interest of anti-fascism, especially. Then the other uh, big event is World War II and what World War II taught everybody. And this is one thing the House on american Activities Committee gets very right in 1947, which is movies matter. In the past, we thought that movies were something we went to to, you know, turn our minds off, uh, escapism, dance with Fred and Ginger in Art Deco apartments, forget the woes of the Great Depression. But during World War II, Hollywood uh, organized to promulgate this wonderful set of values of teamwork, tolerance, the American way, and to teach Americans in newsreels and in propaganda films and instructional shorts that... uh, these values matter, right? And every American knew that. 
And it seems like it must have been so confusing for Hollywood because here they are, they've just done years of work making these ultra-patriotic films, making films like <laughs> Mission to Moscow with an elbow from FDR saying, these are our friends, make a movie called Mission to Moscow, and now they're in trouble for it. Exactly. And poor uh, you know, Jack Warner, who testifies the first day, Warner Brothers did more than any other studio to warn America about the evils of Nazism and basically uh, turns its studio over to uh, the War Department to help make val- uh, movies that will promulgate the right values for the Second World War. You know, those famous Warner Brothers platoon films that have you know, the Irishman, the Jew, the Italian guy, the old guy, the young guy uh, that uh, tell us that uh, you have to tolerate everybody and you have to work together for the war effort. So Warner Brothers did a lot of those films, Casablanca Air Force and Mission to Moscow, which was one of the pro-Soviet films that Hollywood is now called to account for. And when uh, Louis B. Mayer, and, uh, who did Song of Russia, another uh, pro-Soviet film, and Jack Warner uh, testify that first day on October 20th, you get this sense that they're sort of looking around the room and saying, does everybody have amnesia? And like three years ago, the Soviet Union was our allies, and we made these films in that spirit. Yeah, and a lot of those people on that first day, one of the people they all pointed fingers to was Trumbo. I mean, who are some of these people who accused Trumbo, and what was their motivation for, for accusing him? Well, when the committee sets up its original list of witnesses, they divided them along basically two lines. And the witnesses divided themselves this way, too, the so-called friendly witnesses that basically supported the right of the committee to investigate Hollywood uh, for communist subversion. But, of course, they denied that the industry was in any way a tool of Soviet propaganda. And these were the studio heads and the heads of the Screen Actors Guild, both the past heads like Robert Montgomery and George Murphy and the present head, a guy named Ronald Reagan, who uh, you'll hear about later in American history, uh, and the unfriendly witnesses. Uh, There were 19 of them originally who were subpoenaed, who opposed the right of the committee to call an American citizen uh, before Congress to explain uh, his political beliefs or his assembly. Uh, as protected by the U.S. Constitution. And so that group, of which Trumbo is one, is uh, there to defy the committee. Now, one thing that's very important, I think, to remember about this first round of HUAC hearings in 47 is that this group all stood on their First Amendment rights of free expression, which turned out to be a major tactical uh, mistake. And the reason they did that, instead of standing on their Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination, was they actually wanted to take on the committee, engage in argument and in discourse, and in their minds, discredit the committee. So that's why when you see those famous films of Trumbo and John Howard Lawson and some of the other witnesses yelling at uh, the famously intemperate J. Parnell Thomas, who uh, chaired the committee, that what uh, they're trying to do is get around a direct answer and read a statement or come back at the committee with a counterargument that they believe will discredit the committee. Right. So like when Trumbo yells at the committee that, you know, yes or no answers are for, quote, morons and slaves, which I think is interesting, given that he's going to write Spartacus. He's, yes, he thinks at that moment he's going to win. He thinks that their mm-hmm. side is right and they'll just be proven right. And they have a lot of people in their corner. You know, people seem to think that this is just a temporary blip and then it isn't. Exactly. And but but the thing you have to remember about the 10, though, and this is what 
Hollywood really has a hard time with is in the end, the committee has the goods on them. They have their Communist Party cards. So 10 highly paid screenwriters from Hollywood are called before the committee and the committee produces the smoking gun, which is you are a member of the Communist Party. And Hollywood wants no part of that. And they want no part of the kind of defiance and disrespect that John Howard Lawson and Trumbo uh, give to the committee. Uh, we play that, those, that newsreel footage today, and it looks like, all right, you know, speaking truth to power. And uh, audiences actually applaud when you uh, uh, play a film like Hollywood on Trial, which is a great archival recapitulation of this moment. Uh, but at the time, it did not play well at all. And that is why the next month... Uh, the Hollywood studio heads get together and inaugurate the Hollywood blacklist with something called the Waldorf Statement, which uh, is named after the Waldorf uh, uh, Astoria Hotel in New York, where they get together and issue a statement saying they will not employ a known communist. I mean, that highly paid thing that you just mentioned, I find that really interesting. I mean, yeah. Trumbo, especially, he's the highest paid screenwriter in Hollywood. I mean, that just yeah. seems like a con- like a contradiction. How could you be this devout communist follower, as they're painting him, you know, kind of like a mindless mm-hmm. follower of Russia, and yet yeah. you're the symbol of capitalism winning. You have this nice house everybody brags about. It, well, exactly. And, and, of course, you get the same phenomenon today of, uh, you know, the, the, the patrician socialist or the, uh, the trust fund communist who, uh, you know, has a fairly nice bank account, but is professing uh, an alliance with the people who usually don't want any part of him. So uh, and, and particularly Americans in the post-war era are going to resent something like this. And that atmosphere, uh, Amy, is always, I think, so important to remember that you're, you're coming in the late 40s into early, in the early 50s. And it's a time for Americans of uh, such economic prosperity, the kind that they never imagined 10 years before as they were suffering through the horrors of the Great Depression. And now you have this largesse where, you know, you can get an automobile, a television set, air conditioning, and uh, there are people that want to take it away. So you think. And this is a a generation that really feels in its bones the fact that uh, your life can explode on any any day, like the stock market crash or Pearl Harbor, and your life could be totally turned around. So when I think of the 50s, I always think of two words, affluence and anxiety. You know, things are better than you've ever had them, but yeah, you always have the sense in your bones that it can be taken away in a heartbeat. So how does somebody like Bogart survived this moment because Bogart was there. Bogart was, you know, lending his face, lending his support alongside Lauren Bacall to saying this is wrong. How does he squeak through? Well, he he recants the next year. And part of it, and this, Amy, this is sort of like uh, you put this in the life is not fair file. That some people survive this and some don't. Uh, so Lucille Ball, for example, who's a very valuable property to CBS, gets involved in a, a you know a blacklist brouhaha when she's the biggest star in television in the early 1950s. And because it's Lucy, we you know who wants to take Lucy off the air because she signed up as a communist to please her father in the 1930s? Nobody does. And so Desi and Lucy have this press conference in which Desi says, uh, "There's nothing red about my girl except her hair," and even that isn't really red. And everybody laughs and Lucy goes on TV. But uh, if you got got a guy like Philip Loeb, who was in a very popular sitcom called The Goldbergs as 
Jake Goldberg, the patriarch of the well-loved Goldberg family. He's got some left-wing activity. He's listed in red channels, and uh, the sponsor says, we're not going to support your show unless you take Philip Loeb off the air. And they do. I mean, and he commits suicide four years later. Yeah. I mean, you're making me think the only way to survive an accusation like this is if you dye your hair red, and that way you can make a joke about it. And then <laughs> yeah. everybody will be like, ha, or, or ha, ha. Or you're so popular that uh, people will overlook it, or you recant like Bogart. And he publishes an article uh, you know, basically saying, I was a tool of the Reds. I didn't expect to get my picture on the front page of the Daily Worker. And... Uh, it goes away because he's such, he and Bacall are such big stars. You know, what I think is most striking about Show Trial, your book, is the sense that how slow and gradual and creeping in a way that this shut down, these steps towards the blacklist kind of felt at the moment. I mean, mm-hmm. in a moment now that seems also very politically polarized, like, are you seeing any similarities? Like, what should we you know, just be aware of as like, we don't want to take that even first step? Well, you know, one thing I look back on is, you know, and this sounds commonsensical, is just be calm, wait 24 hours before you shoot off a tweet, perhaps. <laughs> uh, and then the other thing is uh, a commitment to due process. I mean, that's just so essential. And uh, if you're, you're doing any kind of accusation, and especially a criminal proceeding, is you know, we, we have a fairly nice system of Anglo-Saxon jurisprudence that can resolve some of these issues give people a fair hearing in a court of law. Uh, And that, I think, is one of the lessons always of the blacklist. Right. That's why you call it show trial, because it wasn't fair. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. And it's show trial in two senses of the word. I don't mean to say it's, you know, like the Stalinist uh, show trial where, you know, you're going to be sent off to Lubyanka prison and shot or out to the gulag. But it, it was sort of like a presentation that everybody was there to... Uh, sort of as a performance piece, both sides of the aisle, in fact, both the the House, which is there to get the publicity, because if you attack Hollywood, you're going to get a lot more publicity than you go than going after communists and the teachers union. And then the Hollywood 10 itself, which want to oppose the committee, which is why everybody's happy to have the newsreel coverage and the live radio coverage. Well, so, Thomas, thank you so much. This has been such an interesting conversation. Oh, thanks so much, Amy. It is a pleasure to talk to you. That was actually really fascinating to hear. I think what I'm understanding is what effect this had to a lot of people, and myself included. It felt like, oh, it just went on for like a little bit, and it wasn't that big a deal, and there's only two people that kind of affected her, a handful of people. But no, it really, the reverberations of that. Yeah, uh, people were, died. People yeah. committed suicide. You know, people lost all their money. Like, I mean, it was so brutal. And I think you hear echoes of it for sure in Spartacus. I mean, like this speech towards the end of the film really sticks out to me. As those slaves have died, so will your rebel if they falter one instant in loyalty to the new order of affairs. The enemies of the state are known. Arrests are in progress. The prisons begin to fill. In every city and province, lists of the disloyal have been compiled. Tomorrow they will learn the cost of their terrible folly, their treason. Where does my name appear on the list of disloyal enemies of the state? First. I mean, I do want to say, I feel like a person like Dalton Trumbo is maybe one of the only people who I think is allowed 
to mm-hmm. have an opinion on somebody like Kazan because he was there and because he made the choice that like other people are just armchair choicing yeah. for him. And what he said about it in 1970, I thought was really striking. Like this is, um, he was given a Laurel Award for his achievement in screenwriting by the Writers Guild. And this is what he said. He says, when he looks back at that time, there was bad faith and good, honesty and dishonesty, courage and cowardice, selfishness and stupidity, good and bad on both sides. And that it does no good to search for villains or heroes or saints or devils because there were none, that there were only victims. And some suffered less than others, some grew and some diminished, but in the final tally, we were all victims because almost without exception, each of us felt compelled to say things he did not want to say, to do things he did not want to do, to deliver and receive wounds he did not want to exchange. And that is why none of us, right, left, or center, emerged from that long nightmare without sin. Mm. Andy said that, and then he got piled on and right. kind of momentarily yeah. canceled because people were like, no, 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 no. But that was him trying to kind of find some sort of common ground. Like, it's really interesting. Like, Kirk Douglas was saying, you know, before he made Spartacus in the years, like, before he made it, he was asked to sign loyalty oaths before he was allowed to sign on to projects. And that even just that act of signing a loyalty oath to be able to work, he felt compromised. And I get that. Like, right. It, I think it really is hard to understand that there was no way to kind of come out of that era feeling clean. Well, do you think, and I know we talked a little bit about this with Hitchcock, that him making Psycho is literally checking out of this situation in Hollywood by not making a big budget movie, by making something that is a little bit lower on the scale. And yes, we understand that he was trying to challenge himself and make something that was a little bit different. But also I wonder if by doing something under the radar, low budget indie, he was avoiding getting mired up in this controversy. That is interesting. I mean, this way of being like, you don't own me. Yeah. Because there's another way of looking at this period and saying everybody whose career was fine in the 50s, whether or not they ever testified, in a way they're kind of complicit too. Because what did they do to make sure they could still work? God, it's like just like there, but by the grace of God, go all of us not having to live in that time where you can't really emerge. Well, I think the one thing that I'm constantly seeing is that every generation has these kind of pivotal moments that, you know, that we kind of cyclically go back into where it does question the us versus them or whose side are you on or take sides. And and it's amazing that we get over one, but yet we're so quick to fall into another version of it. And I guess the trick would be, how long can you keep that going on for? Because there was an end to this. We were able to finish it, but we always are finding a way to separate each other and say, no, you're different or you're this or you're that and and draw a line. I mean, it's true that I don't think Spartacus would exist at, if not for this. Because what happened is, you know, Spartacus, this film is based on a novel written by a guy named Howard Fast. And Howard Fast was put in prison mm-hmm. for this during like the HUAC trials. And while he was in trial, this novelist, he got really interested in the story of Spartacus. And so he wrote the original Spartacus novel about this slave uprising. And Kirk Douglas found it years later. And he wasn't even, Fast himself wasn't even allowed to publish this. He had been this best-selling novelist. And none of the major publishing houses would even take this novel because he was associated with communism. He had to publish the novel himself in his basement with his wife. And then it became like a popular seller, but the critics couldn't even give it a good review. They're like, oh, it's badly written. And he's like, all of my other novels were given great prizes. What are you talking about? But they're like, no, 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 no. And Kirk Douglas was able to option this novel for a hundred bucks because nobody wanted to do it. 
And he believed in this story. He believed that there was something in this story to do. He asked Fast to write the first screenplay of it, and he didn't like Fast's script, and he needed it turned around fast. And that is how Trumbo got involved in the first place, because Trumbo was known as the guy who could write anything really, really fast, even if he had to do it under a different name. In the book, the way that, that Kirk Douglas kind of lays this out is he was kind of content to let the script go up under the name Sam Jackson, and everybody would quietly know it was Dalton Trumbo, the way that everybody knew that Dalton Trumbo <laughs> had know, written Roman Holiday. And you know how they found uh, the script, because in the, the, the script is the one that said Bad Motherfucker on it. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. But... <laughs> I actually want to play a scene just to kind of set this up. So yeah. one of the things that we really love about... <laughs> I'm just I, enjoying that. <laughs> I want to play a scene about what we love about Spartacus because, like, this is a scene between Charles Lawton and Peter Ustinov, and they're just being amazing and funny. And this scene being great is, I think, in a way, what actually broke this blacklist taboo. And I'll explain. But let's right. listen to it and just enjoy them for a second first. You and I have a tendency towards corpulence. Corpulence makes a man reasonable, pleasant, and phlegmatic. Have you noticed the nastiest of tyrants are invariably thin? In spite of your vices, you are the most generous Roman of our time. Vices? <laughs> Ladies. <laughs> Ladies, since when are they a vice? Oh, perhaps I used the wrong word, no, an eccentricity, a, f a foible, I hope I pronounced that word. It's well known that even your groom and your butler are women. I'm the most virtuous man in Rome. I keep these women out of my respect for Roman morality. That morality, which has made Rome strong enough to steal two-thirds of the world from its rightful owners, founded on the sanctity of Roman marriage and the Roman family, I happen to like women. I have a promiscuous nature, and unlike these aristocrats, I will not take a marriage vow which I know that by nature will prevent me from keeping. You have too great a respect for the purity of womankind. Exactly. I mean, I love, I love that, that scene because it's such a fun example of a like moral hypocrisy. You know, yeah. like, oh no, I must have lots of women because I believe so much in marriage that I will <laughs> never be married myself. But also, it's these two actors both trying to steal the scene from each other, both trying to steal the movie from each other, oh, both competing to be the best. They're making up a lot of their language. They're both kind of calling Trumbo, like, give me a good line here. Give me this good line really? here. Trumbo has been rewriting the script over and over again. Because to get all of these major talents on board, to get Olivia on board, to get everybody on board, one of the evil kind of things that Kirk Douglas did behind the scenes was he had Dalton Trumbo write a million different versions of the script. So he'd give Laurence Olivier a, a version where he had a bunch of good scenes. Then he'd give Peter Ustinov a version where he had a bunch of good scenes. Then he'd give Charles a version where Charles had a bunch of good scenes. And all of them realized they all had different scripts because they were both, they all had scripts written just to flatter them and get them to say yes. Wow. So Dalton Trumbo behind the scenes is just continually rewriting the script, trying to make everybody happy. He finally has a breakdown and he's like, I'm done. I'm yeah, not working well, on this anymore. That's this is ridiculous. I quit. And the way that Kirk Douglas got him to not quit was he said, you know what? I'll put your name on it. And that Whoa. was the thing. That was the leverage. He was like, if I put your name on it, will you please stay with us and help me finish this fucking movie? Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, and then, this is Kirk Douglas's version of it. Then what happens is Otto Preminger is like, you're going to put Dalton Trumbo's name on your script? Well, then I'm going to hire him and I'm going to put Dalton Trumbo's name on my script. And then Otto Preminger gives an interview about it first and he gets all the credit. What? That everybody's like, oh my God, Otto Preminger is going to hire Dalton Trumbo and blah, 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 and put his name on the script. And Kirk Douglas is like, super mad about it. He's like, that was my idea. This brings me to my question about the film and how it was received. 
it's obviously won awards, but this is a movie that comes out the same year as Ben-Hur. My gut is there is no baking soda or play sets for Spartacus where Ben-Hur had a ton of merchandising, almost on the level of Star Wars. Is Ben-Hur the film that is of that year, the one that everyone's like, ah, Ben-Hur, and it's safer, and it's cleaner, and it's, is that kind of what happens here? I mean, it's weird, right? Because the Spartacus that I like is this cut of Spartacus, Mm -hmm. which has like the oysters and the snails and all the weirdness that people in 1960 didn't see. Right. You know, all of the stuff that I kind of enjoy about this film was cut out. I mean, the stuff that they cut out was like the cool deaths. They cut out a lot of the deaths. They cut out a lot of the battle scenes that Kubrick did. One of the things that the censors wanted to cut was this first really dramatic gladiator scene between Draba, the very tall yeah. man played by Woody Strode, you know, who is actually, they say, like, where Woody in Toy Story gets his name from. Oh, really? Is this actor, Woody Strode, um, who, you know, I mean, he's amazing. Like, he gets the Golden Globe Best Supporting Actor nomination for this really small but pivotal role as wow. the gladiator who's a better fighter than Spartacus but I won't lo- kill him. He's fan. I mean, that is a great scene. And again, we're talking about showing the complexity of Spartacus. He beats Spartacus. He beats Spartacus. Spartacus loses, and he shows Spartacus what true heroism is. Spartacus is, would have right. killed him. Yeah. But he says, no, I will not kill him. He he will not kill Spartacus. And he is the true hero. And I think the most of the movie is Spartacus trying to live up to his example. You see Spartacus like go back to the gladiator training center and look at the rope where Drabo was yeah. hung. And, and that's where he really becomes activated and realizes the role that he can play here and not just survive for himself, but raise everybody up. Right. I guess that is the moment where he stops being selfish, right? Yeah. Because, you know, when all the gladiators go back, we talked about, you know, before they set themselves free, before the, the face is dipped into the pot of soup, um, you know, Drava is hanging from, you know, a rope. The way that everyone looks at him there in the gladiator quarters, it it speaks so much. You really feel the weight of that death. And again... Yeah, and they wanted to downplay that death. I love that moment, you know, with Draba hanging there in the gladiatorial uh, quarters and the way everyone takes it in because it actually means that his death means something. And yes, it activates Spartacus later. That's his turning point. But it also gives every character in this movie, I think this happens throughout, they had a reason they're, they're not just there to be an extra body. And I think you see that especially in the end. I mean, that end sequence when they're walking through the battlefield. Oh, that got me. That, got, that really emotionally gets me. Like, yeah. I mean, I think if the censors had downplayed that death, like, which yeah. they wanted to, which they tried to do, you know, this film wouldn't have the impact. It is interesting. Like, you were talking about Psycho earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, Janet Lee's death is shocking. And I think the deaths in Spartacus are also really gruesome and shocking. And they're both pushing this envelope towards violence at the same time. I mean, the censors, and I'm I'm not even totally sure if this was in the original 1960 cut or just ours. You know, there's that scene where you see somebody slice off a hand. Oh, yeah. And that's Kubrick being like, I want to have real amputees in my movie so that I can slice off their fake hands. Just like we did in Piranha it, 3D. Yeah, and have it get really, really gory. And they didn't want, the censors weren't going to let them do that. And Kirk Douglas was like, talking about the terror of shooting scenes where he's got swords and he's slicing off amputees' fake arms and he's worried he's going to hit their real arm underneath it. Oh. You know, and he's like taking it to the limit for Kubrick's sake. He would only do it once. He didn't do a second take on that when he when he uh, chopped <laughs> off the arm of a Roman. It's fascinating to me the fights that were happening. Like, for example, when Kirk Douglas sent his idea for the I Am Spartacus scene to Kubrick, 
and Kubrick didn't even bother to write him back about it. Like Kirk Douglas walks up to Kubrick on set and he's like, why won't you do it? And Kubrick's like, it's a stupid idea. And he pushes him against the wall and says, listen, you little prick. In front of everybody. Wow. I mean, this set seems like kind of a nightmare. I mean, the way that Trumbo would talk about Kubrick was he call, he said, letting a director scissor a decent script is like turning a starved weasel loose in a hen house. Phrases and feathers all over the place and very little life remaining. Because all Kubrick wanted to do was cut out all the dialogue and just have it be these big, dramatic, silent scenes. Wow, that, I mean, which... I mean, it has very much a lot of David Lean in it, right? Yeah, and there's a lot of ways in which it works. Like, I love that we don't hear Spartacus talk for a long time. Mm -hmm. You know, you wait and wait and wait to have him be a person with, like, who's capable of giving big speeches. Yeah, I mean, there is a great symmetry in the film as well. You know, when you first, you know, meet Spartacus and, you know, he's getting in trouble and he's in the gladiatorial camp and basically the instructor is making him uh not a lesson out of him but he's kind of trying to goad him on to fight you know he's he's taunting him spartacus says nothing and then at the end of the film when Lawrence olivier is taunting him he still says nothing he spits you know he makes a he makes a mo me but he i like that this character is smart and not just like he can get out of it he's spartacus like he knows when he has power when he doesn't have power he knows what he's trying to do I don't know. I just, I appreciated that too. Yeah. I mean, what it means when he finally is talking and saying things like, I'm not an animal in mm -hmm. a scene with Gene Simmons, when they're put together to meet for people's amusement, yeah. it has it carry so much more weight. Well, and not to give Kubrick too much faith, because we know as a director, he was pretty insane. Um, you know, gave Tom Cruise an ulcer and eyes wide shut and, and among many other things, like we talked about what went on on Clockwork Orange. But do you think that as a director, he's also personifying Rome to these people to make them write and act better? Like if he is the authoritarian in a world where these two guys, Trumbo is writing a story about a freedom fighter and Kirk Douglas is playing this character who's revolting against the system by putting himself in that position, in a way you're getting a better performance. You mean like he's kind of being the state and everybody's yeah. rebelling against yeah. him? I mean, he was the common enemy. Because I do think that everything I've seen about Kubrick is like getting to the meat of this character. It was like, I need to get Tom Cruise so out of being Tom Cruise that he becomes, you know, quote unquote, an actor. And I think that was a, a, a big breakthrough moment for a lot of t um, people would say in Tom Cruise world, like what this other version of him that we had not seen, we had not the Top Gun, not the even far in the way, you know, like all these, you know, Days of Thunder, Tom Cruise, it was a more broken Whoa, version. whoa, 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 yeah, you went too far. Uh, Tom Cruise was a better actor in Born on the Fourth of July than he is in like, than he is in Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, I think Kubrick was kind of being a jerk, to be honest. I, I mean, like, I, 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 I'm, I'm like, taking the wrong Kubrick side, I think Kubrick took yes. advantage of the fact that Trumbo couldn't even show up on set in order to be like, I'm, I'm in command right. and I'm going to ignore the script when I want to because he knew the screenwriter wasn't even there to complain. Right. I mean, Trumbo had to be snuck in to set under a blanket to watch cuts of the movie. Wow. And then the movie was a disaster in the first cut. Everybody hated it. And Trumbo was the one who went home over that weekend and like fixed it, like wrote up a whole series of notes of how to re-edit the film in order, in order to make it work correctly. Wow. Look, I mean, Kubrick is clearly getting in the way of everybody. I'm just hypothesizing that he had a greater ulterior motive. But I even mean, I will say Eyes Wide Shut would not exist without this movie because Kirk Douglas made Stanley Kubrick go to therapy with him. Oh, Because really? they were getting along so badly. Like, I mean, the set yeah. was a nightmare. 
They went to therapy together. He took Stanley to his therapist, this guy named Dr. Cooper. And Dr. Cooper gave Stanley Kubrick this book called Tram Novel. It was this novella. And it's the novella that Eyes Wide Shut was ended, ended up wow. being based on. So there is this That's argument that if this movie hadn't been a total mental breakdown for everybody. Right. Like, well, all right, we wouldn't get Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, we also know that the art director, and this movie is beautifully art directed, uh, suffered a fatal heart attack during production. And I can't imagine that that wasn't in part due to the stress there. He also won an Oscar. Um, but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he would have taken a little less stress. And, and maybe I'm uh, really generalizing by saying that that movie put too much stress on him. And yet, when this movie works, it really works. I mean, that battle scene when Spartacus faces down the Roman army. I mean, let's just even listen to a little bit of it. The heavy footsteps and like the thunk, 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 as this phalanx just keeps shaping and reshaping this evil, I don't know, marching band of the damned. of that it's amazing and when they light those logs on fire and just start rolling it down towards the troops you think like how can you beat these people and they beat them with such well they even the score I guess with such creativity I love those burning logs it's so frightening and it's also so not silly but it's like Oh, this run out of the way of the burning logs, but they they seem so violent. I mean, and and you get why that like imagine that coming down the hill. I will say, um, and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I didn't love the score in this movie. It's it's one of the things lacking. I mean, it's a good it's it's a good score, a functional score. But when we've talked about these epics, it's one of the things that you really take away from it. Uh, and this I feel like is a little fine. It's fine. That's interesting. I mean, I think it's a really in-your-face score. Yes. You know, like, let's even listen to a little bit from the overture, because I think this score, it doesn't sound like an epic score. You know, I think it's very, it's deliberately discordant. You know, it's a lot of clashing tones. It's almost more playful than you expect it to be in a lot of ways. I think it's a really unsettling score. Let's listen to the overture, and then let's keep talking about it. Because, yeah, like, this score is fascinating and weird and yet Steven Spielberg said it was one of his top favorite scores of all time. This is made to make you feel on edge, right? Yeah. I like guess. it's not easy. It's it sounds almost like it's trying to be triumphant, but the notes are just a little bit crooked. Yeah, it's a little discordant. You're right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like militaristic, but it's not cheerful. It's not doom and gloom. It's, no, it's a it's an interesting mix. It doesn't have like the majesty of Gone with the Wind or Lawrence of Arabia. Um, it's not pretty. It's no. aggressive. Right. It's different than Ben-Hur, which is a kind of a classical, again, a non-recognizable score. I don't know if I would be able to pick out a Ben-Hur track. The composer is this guy named Alex North. And usually, you know, a composer has maybe 10 weeks tops to yeah. do a score. He had 13 months because this film took so long. Wow. And so he really got into finding all of these original strange instruments that were from, you know, all over Africa and from the former Roman Empire, trying to put together weird sounds that would make people's teeth vibrate oh, a little bit. And then he would try to do things like, you know, there's this whole sequence where Spartacus is falling in love while he's also going through this gladiatorial training. And he would use music to give you this emotional whiplash. Like, let's listen to a little bit of okay. that. 
And so you really feel this relief, mm. you know, that Verinia yeah. brings to his life. Like, it's only when she's on screen that the music gets beautiful. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. I mean, I don't really consider Kubrick to be a director who's good at human emotions for the mm. most part. But I think this film is good at human emotions, more so than most of his other films, especially the I romance. Agree. Like, I never think of him as being a person who can capture romance. But when this film notices, you know, Spartacus rubbing fingers quietly with the slave girl that he loves that he can't talk to, that really works. And I love how when they finally get together for the first time, when he rescues her, kind of steals her back, what they do is they don't just, like, look at each other and they're like, I love you forever. Right. They laugh. You know, that scene, I want to listen to that because I think there's this really beautiful connection they feel that is just about them enjoying each other and being yeah. able to talk to each other. How'd you escape? Well, I, I jumped out of the car and died. This was so fat. <laughs> 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 I flew out of the cart. <laughs> and my tiredness was so fast. <laughs> he couldn't catch me. He couldn't catch up with me. <laughs> you realize? I mean, I love it. I, I, I absolutely love that scene. And I love when he's just watching her in the water. I know I talked about that earlier. It's like these moments of real connection that you feel like we talk about this a lot like well where is their connection who why are they together why are they together like besides just you're a man and you're a woman i get why they are together i get why they are connected i i understand it and as a result the emotional payoff of her being you know kept as a slave being traded as a slave it, it's so much more profound for me. Yeah, even the way they commit to each other, you know, forbid me from ever leaving you. Mm. It's in the mentality of somebody who's only ever belonged to people. Yeah. You know, but like, I want to belong to you. It's, you know, when you think about that line, the way they betroth each other to each other, it, in a way it is sort of like how a marriage vow works, but it's also through this version of, not being able to think for yourself or, you know, it's like mm -hmm. adapting the worldview they've been forced to grow up in to the way they love each other. It's it's a chewy, strange line, and I love it. It's so kind of screwed up and yet romantic. I 100% agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, also, by the way, there's like this, you know, romantic element between Laurence Olivier and her and Laurence mm -hmm. Olivier and, of course, Tony Curtis. Well, I love that Laurence Olivier, what he wants, I love why he takes her and what he does to her. It's like... 
he and she calls it out, you know, about why she's captured there. He's like he wants something that Spartacus had and 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 wants to not denigrate Spartacus, but like make himself equal. And I think one of his great, you know, moments is at the end when, you know, Spartacus is, you know, gonna be crucified. He's like, well no, he's gonna be more powerful now. It's it's the Obi-Wan speech, you know, I'm more powerful now than I ever was. You know, it's I mean, that's a great quote. It's almost exactly it's like how do I remember the lines that perfectly? I'll never share it. I'll never share it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's interesting that Gene Simmons was even cast in this role because, like, Kirk Douglas really wanted somebody who didn't have a British accent. Right. Because he was like, everybody else has a British accent here, sort of, or American. And this is before Kiss, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> So he wanted he wanted this actress who was German because he thought her German accent would be an interesting yeah. like contradiction to everybody else because this character wouldn't sound like she was from the same right. region. And so he hired this beautiful German girl and Stanley Kubrick kept being like, she can't act. I don't want her. And he was like, she's beautiful. I want her. I want her accent. And Stanley was like, no, I don't want her. And what he did is he brought this German actress into the office and he fired her. And he was pretend firing her just for Kirk Douglas's benefit because he was like, watch, I'm going to pretend fire her. And when I do, she's not going to react at all. And then you're going to know she's wrong for this movie because she has no emotions. And so he did. He pretend fired her and she just kind of kept her face together and then left the room. And then Kirk Douglas was like, fine, you can fire her for real because you're right. Like, I want somebody with more life to her. Yeah. And so Gene Simmons, the rock star, yeah. was also this woman who had been doing a lot of movies with Laurence Olivier. They knew each other. They were both in Hamlet together where she played Ophelia. Gene Simmons is this, like, classically trained actor. So I think really adds so much to this movie. Well, she, you know, I think elevates. Again, we're talking about a movie and... And maybe I came into it going, like, the reason why this is good is because Stanley Kubrick. And I think what I'm realizing in this conversation is, I think going back to your casserole quote, this is a movie that is a bunch of great components that just happen to make a delicious, mouthwatering casserole. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think my favorite scene is probably when the two rich Roman women are trying to pick out what slaves they want to see murdered. Yeah. And they just want the hottest slaves murdered. Yes. And it's just this creepy scene of, like... Buying and selling people, you really feel the horror of what slavery is and what the gladiator battles were and the worthlessness of life, of life to these people because these rich people are just gossiping about life in Rome and how they want to see these slaves a little bit naked. But really, let's talk more about life in Rome and work and chit-chat. And Kubrick keeps the, the camera on the faces of these men who are about to die while these rich Roman people are talking about inanities, basically. I but know. like, oh, kill them. I want to see them die. And their offhanded casualness about it. Well, that's what I love. It, that, that scene, they're watching a gladiator match and they're having a conversation that you might have at a baseball game or a basketball game. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. What's that? Okay. Oh, yeah. I got to go get that. Oh, yeah. It's Aaron talk. It's nothing. Exactly. And I think that clash is what makes it so great. You know, it's not like, oh, stab him there and get him and kill him in right. that way. They, it's, it's disinterested but just for their amusement. So I know, Amy, we've been talking about a bunch of different stuff, but um, I don't think I understand really how this film was received when it came out. Like, uh, you know, obviously we know how it's received now. Um, it's a classic, but was it a classic when it came out? To be honest, as much as I enjoyed watching this, I don't think it was seen as so much of a classic that it's like, obviously it has to be on this list, right. even at the time. It wasn't even one of those like, this is the greatest epic and we'll never take it back. Our feelings yeah. right now, you must respect them forevermore. You know, the way we've seen of some yeah. of the films on the list. Um, people liked it. You know, some people were like, eh, like Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, who mm -hmm. comes up a lot because he was yes. a big contrarian. You know, he kind of described it as... Bursting with patriotic fervor, bloody tragedy, a lot of romantic fiddle-faddle and historical inaccuracies. And he said it was pitched to the level of a lusty schoolboy's taste. 
you know, the way that he talked about it is he said that Kirk got the, quote, aggressive Dalton Trumbo to write him a freedom-shouting script and hired the very promising Stanley Kubrick of the American New Wave to direct it, but that this Spartacus is still heroic humbug, a vast panoramic display of synthetic Rome and Romans, and he said that the senators and generals are confusing but less amusing than those in Washington, and he called it a spotty, uneven drama where the middle phase is pretentious and tedious and dull strife and that it slides off into an anticlimax. What he said is actually pretty accurate. He said that too many people, too many cooks had their ladles in this stew and it comes out a romantic mishmash of a strange episode in history. But that's what I like about it and that's what he hated about it, that there were too many fingerprints on it. Huh, these are interesting films to break down. I don't know how you feel about it. I mean, do you think this is a movie that belongs on the list? Um, I think we could do without it. To really, be so you, but yeah. I mean, but of all the epics that we've watched, where do you think this falls? All right, so better than Ben Hur. I think it's more fun to watch than Ben Hur for sure. Okay. I think this is definitely more fun to watch. Okay, I think Ben Hur I mean, chariot race versus the battle sequence here is great, but I think the memorable moment from this scene is is verbal. It's the I am Spartacus scene, right? Yeah, I mean, I think of all the big giant epics. Lawrence of Arabia is the one for me that I think has the most reasons to be on the list mm. because I really think that why I really think why Spartacus is here is because of what it represents to the black to the blacklist and because it's a Kubrick picture and I think those two things elevate it more than right. it than it even maybe was seen at the time. I, yeah, and I was wondering as I was watching, I was like, am I also just reacting to this in what we've been seeing and. And the lineup of the films, the way that this kind of all got put together for us, it felt like a culmination of a lot of things we've been talking about. And it felt like, oh, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So I re- I felt like I was really gravitating towards it as a piece that checked off a lot of different boxes from a lot of the different films that we've been enjoying. Yeah, and I feel like you can't undersell really the fact that JFK buys a ticket to see this in a movie theater, not even like at the White House, Mm -hmm. but he goes to a movie theater. And then he says, it was fine. And that sounds offhand, but JFK, the president of the the United States, seeing a movie written by Dalton Trumbo that says Dalton Trumbo on screen, I mean, that breaks the the blacklist. Right. But does it have to be on the AFI list and take a spot for that? No, but I like it. Yeah, I... Maybe I like that it makes Kubrick mad. Look, I think we get into a couple of different arguments here about the list. And this is where, you know, it remains to be seen. How many movies do we need to have about this moment in Hollywood when there are so many other moments that are so underrepresented on this list, right? In American history, in uh, in social history, you know, like we are really focusing on this very Hollywood moment and i and i see why but i also have to say like you know it's like the way that these the oscars are always like oh they'll give a movie about hollywood the oscar they like to be navel gazy so there's a lot of films here that are tackling the same subject matter now i feel like do i need to see another one probably not like what's the best one what's the best i i don't know i mean that's a larger conversation that we should maybe have in a different episode but like what is the best you know uh film is it is it high noon is it on the waterfront as far as like epics i think it definitely hits a lot of the same notes that we've seen i think the talent involved is really impressive i argue for this to stay on the list it's probably up a little higher than i would have put it but i think it's important to be 
on this list for all the reasons that you and I've just talked about. It's, it's representing a lot of different voices and it may not be a singular vision, but it's the, the work of a lot of great people kind of coming together and making something that I think really, really works. Look, we've, we've said a lot of things about this film. We're a split decision on this one, but I guess the only way we could see if we are united is, is there a Simpsons clip? There is a casual Simpsons reference. I was I thought for sure there'd be like a There's not an I'm Spartacus, I'm Lisa. There is not an I am Bart Simpson. There are a lot like there's shots of stores called Sporticus. Nah, you know, kind of it doesn't count. Guy. And then the closest thing there is is when Bart Simpson leads a rebellion when he is stuck at Camp Krusty. He leads a rebellion, and this is how the newscasters describe it. Crisis at Camp Krusty. <gasps> Ladies and gentlemen, I've been to Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, and I can say without hyperbole that this is a million times worse than all of them put together. A group of school-age Spartacuses has taken this camp by force. Three counselors are missing and presumed scared. Wow, that's small. That's a that's a subtle, small <laughs> reference. But uh, it counts. It's on the board. It counts. So, Amy... Next week, we're going to be talking about uh, a classic film, Some Like It Hot, and I thought it might be fun to bring back a little game that we played when we did our last gender-swapping movie, which was Tootsie. We felt that Tootsie was not a great title for that film, considering it was based on a nickname that Dustin Hoffman's mom called him. Some Like It Hot is a term that's uh, you know said in the film, but not really representative of that film as well. So we want to ask you to come up with a better title for Some Like It Hot. So uh, give us a call at our Unspooled Hotline, which is, of course... 747-666-5824. That is 747-666-5824. And give us a brand new title for the Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, Marilyn Monroe film, Some Like It Hot, about two... Jazz musicians who have to pose as women, and yet one of them falls in love with Marilyn. So that's uh, that is uh, kind of the gist of it. You get it. If you've seen White Chicks, you get it. All right, uh, we will see you next week on Unspooled. <laughs> Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.